In most topics, you have to get pretty advanced before you start addressing the philosophically interesting things. But in chemistry, it just starts right from the get-go with what's arguably the most philosophically interesting part of the whole topic, and that's the atom. And the idea of an atom is philosophers long ago, and you could look it up on the, the, the different philosophers who first philosophized about it. They said, hey, you know, if I started off with, I don't know, if I started off with an apple, if I started off with an apple, and I just kept cutting the apple, I, let me draw a nice looking apple just so it doesn't look just like a heart. Or, there you go, have a nice looking apple. And you just kept cutting it, smaller and smaller pieces. So eventually, you get a piece so small, so tiny, that you can't cut it anymore. And I'm sure some of these philosophers went out there with a knife and tried to do it. And they just felt that, oh, if I could just get my knife a little bit sharper, I could cut it again and again. So it was a completely philosophical construct, which frankly, in a lot of ways, isn't too different to how, to how the atom is today. It's really just a, a, a mental abstraction for, that allows us to describe a lot of observations we see in the universe. But anyway, these philosophers said, well, at some point, we think that there's going to be some little point part of a of an apple that they won't be able to divide anymore and they call that an atom it doesn't have to just be for an apple they said this is true for any substance or any element that you encounter in the universe and so the word atom is really greek for uncuttable uncuttable or indivisible uncuttable now we know that it actually is cuttable and even though it is not a trivial thing it's it's not the the smallest form of matter we know. We now know that the, an atom is made up of other more fundamental particles. And let me let me write them. So we have the we have the neutron. And I'll draw in a second of how they all fit together in in kind of the structure of an atom. We have a neutron, do have a proton, and we have electrons electrons. And you might already be familiar with this. If you look at, uh, at the old videos about, about atomic projects, you'll see a drawing that looks something like this. Let me see if I can draw one. So you'll have you know, something like that, and you'll have these things spinning around that look like this. You know, They have orbits that look like that, and maybe something that looks like that. And the general notion behind these kind of nuclear drawings, and I'm sure that they still show up at some government defense labs or something like that, is that you have a nucleus at the center of an atom. You have a nucleus at the center of an atom. And we know that a nucleus has neutrons and protons. Neutrons and protons. And we'll talk a little bit more about which elements have how many neutrons and how many protons. And then orbiting, orbiting, and I'm going to use the word orbit right now, although we'll learn in about two minutes that the word orbit is actually the incorrect or even the mentally incorrect way of visualizing what electron is doing. But this, the old idea was that you have these electrons that are orbiting around the nucleus, very similar to the way the Earth orbits around the sun or the moon orbits around the Earth. And it's been shown that that's actually a very wrong way. And it, there's a lot of, um, and, and when, we, when we cover quantum mechanics, we'll learn why this doesn't work, what are kind of the contradictions that emerge when you try to model an electron like a planet going around going around the sun. But this was kind of the original idea. And frankly, I think this is kind of the idea that is 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 the most mainstream way of of viewing a a an atom. 
Now, I said an atom is philosophically interesting. Why is it philosophically interesting? Because the, what we now view as the accepted way of viewing an atom really starts to blur the line between kind of you know, our, our physical reality and, and you know, everything in the world is just information. There really isn't any such thing as true matter or true particles as the way we define them in our everyday life. You know what? For me, a particle, oh, it's like a grain of sand. I can pick it up, touch it, while you know, a wave, that could be like a sound wave. It could be this you know, change in energy over time. But we'll learn, especially when we do quantum mechanics, that it all gets jumbled up as we start, we start approaching the scales or the size of an atom. But anyway, I said this was an incorrect way of viewing it. What's the correct way? So it turns out, let's see, this is a picture. Not a picture, really. This is also a depiction. So, so uh, it's an interesting question, what I just said. You know, how can you have a picture of an atom? Because it actually turns out that the wave, most wavelengths of light, that we, especially the visible wavelengths of light, are much larger than the size of an atom. So it's not like something you can even, you know, everything else we quote unquote observe in life, it's by reflected light. But all of a sudden, when you're dealing with an atom, reflected light is almost, you can almost view it as too big or too blunt of an instrument with which to observe an atom. Anyway, this is a depiction of a helium atom. A helium atom. A helium atom has two protons and two neutrons, or at least this helium atom has two protons and two neutrons. And the way they depict it here in the nucleus, right there, maybe these are the two, I'm assuming they're using red for proton and purple for neutron. Neutron seems like purple seems like more of a neutral color and they're sitting at the center of 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 this of this of this atom and then this whole haze around there those are the two electrons that helium has or that at least this helium atom has maybe it could you know gain or lose an electron but these are the two electrons you say hey sal that doesn't make you know how can two electrons be this this blur that's kind of smeared around this this atom and that's where it gets philosophically interesting so you cannot describe an electron's path around a around a, a nucleus with the kind of traditional orbit idea that we've encountered when we look at planets or if we just you know imagine uh, things at kind of a larger scale. It turns out that an electron, you cannot know exactly its momentum and location at any given point in time. All you can know is a probability distribution on where it is likely to be. And the way they depicted this, black is a higher probability. So you're much more likely to find the electron here than you are here. But the electron really could be anywhere. It could even be here, even though it's completely white there, but with some very, 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 very low probability. And so this function of where an electron is, this is called an orbital. Orbital, not to be confused with orbit orbital orbital remember an orbit was something like this it's like the you know venus going around the sun so it's just it's, it's very physically easy for us to imagine while an orbital is actually a mathematical probability function that tells us where we're likely to find an electron and we'll deal with a lot more of that when we cover quantum mechanics but that's not going to be in the scope of this kind of introductory uh, set of chemistry lectures but it's interesting right an electron is 
its behavior is so bizarre at that scale that you can't, I mean, to call it a particle is almost misleading. It is called a particle, but it's not a particle in the sense that we're used to in our everyday life. It's this thing that is that you can't even say exactly where it is. It's, it can be anywhere in this haze, and we'll learn later that there are different shapes of the hazes as we add more and more electrons to an atom. But that, to me, that's, you know, it, it starts to address kind of philosophical issues of, of what matter even is, or you know, do the things we look at, how real are they, or how real are they, at least as, as we've defined reality. Anyway, I don't want to get too philosophical on you. But the, the whole notion of, of of electrons, protons, they're all kind of predicated on this notion of charge. And we've talked about it before when we learned about Coulomb's law, and you could you could review Coulomb's laws videos in the physics playlist. But the idea is that an electron has a an electron has a negative charge, a proton, sometimes written like that, has a positive charge, and a neutron has no charge. And so that was that's what was tempting about the original model of an electron is that they say, okay, if this thing has positive charges, right? Because let's say this is two neutrons and two protons. Let's say it's the helium atom. Then we'll have some positive charges here. We have some negative charges out here. Opposite charges attract. And so, you know, if these things had some, had some, uh, I guess you could call it some, uh, some velocity, they would orb enough velocity. They would orbit around this. It's just the way. Uh, 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 just the way a planet will orbit around the sun, but now we learn, even though this is kind of partially true, that you know the further away, the further away an electron is from the nucleus, the further away an electron is from the nucleus, it does have more. I guess you could. I mean, it's true. Potential energy in that it will want to move towards the nucleus, but because of all of these the, the, the mechanics at the quantum level, it won't just do something simple like move in a path like that, like a comet would do around the sun. It actually has a this kind of wave-like behavior where it just has this probability function that describes it. But the the kind of the further away an orbital, it does have more potential. And we're gonna go a lot more into that in, in future videos. But anyway, how do you recognize what an element is. I've talked a lot about the philosophy and all of that, but how do I know that this is helium? Is it by the number of neutrons it has? Is it by the number of protons it has? Is it by the number of electrons? Well, the answer is it's by the number of protons. So if you know the number of protons in an element, you know what that element is. And the number of protons, number of protons, this is defined as the atomic number. Atomic number. Now, so how do you, let's say I said something has four protons, four protons. How do we know what it is? Well, we could, if we haven't memorized it, we could look it up on the periodic table of elements, which we'll be dealing with a lot in this playlist. And you'd say, oh, four protons, that is beryllium. Right there. And the atomic, ma the atomic number is the number that you see up there. And that's literally the number of protons. And that is the single most different, that is what differentiates one atom from another. If you have 15 protons, you're dealing with phosphorus. Now all of a sudden, if you have, if you have seven, let's say you have seven you're protons, you're dealing with nitrogen. If you have eight, you're dealing with oxygen. That is what defines the element. Now, we'll talk in the future about what happens with with charge and all of that, but or what happens when you gain or lose electrons? But that does not change what element you're dealing with. And likewise, when you have, the, uh, when you change the number of neutrons, that also does not change the element you're dealing with.
But that leads to an obvious question of, well, how many neutrons and, and electrons do you have? Well, if a, if a atom is atomically neutral, or is, is charge neutral, that means it has the same number of electrons. And so let's say that I have a carbon, let's say this, this let's say carbon, it has, its atomic number is six. And let's say its, its mass number is 12. Now what does this mean? So let's, and let's, let, me, let me say further that this is, a, this is a neutral particle. This is a neutral atom. So the atomic number for carbon is six. That tells us exactly how many protons it has. So if I were to draw a little model here, and this is in no way an accurate model, I would draw six, two, three, four, five, six protons in the center. Now, and, and the weight of these protons, each proton is one atomic mass unit. And we'll talk more about that, how that relates to kilograms. It's a very small fraction of kilogram. Roughly one, I think it's like 1.6 times 10 to the minus 27th of a kilogram. So let's say each of these, let me write that. Each of these are one atomic mass unit. And that's approximately equal to, I think, 1.67 times 10 to the minus 27 kilograms. This is a very small number. It's actually very, it's almost impossible to to visualize. At least it is for me. This tells me the 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 mass of the entire carbon atom. This particular carbon atom, and this can actually change from carbon atom to carbon atom. And this is essentially the mass of all of the protons plus all of the neutrons. And each proton has an atomic mass of one in atomic mass units, and each neutron has an atomic mass of one atomic mass unit. So this is really the number of protons, number of protons plus the number of neutron plus number of neutrons. So in this case we have six protons, so we must also have six neutrons. Six neutrons plus six protons. Now where are the electrons? Well I said it's neutral. So the, the proton has an equal positive charge as the electron's negative charge. So this is a neutral atom, and it has six protons, so it also has six electrons. So let me draw that. So we said it has six neutrons in here. One, two, three, four, five, six. So that's, it's, that's the nucleus right there. And then if we were to draw the electrons, well, I, I could draw it as a smear, but if we want to kind of visualize a little better, we could say, OK, there's going to be six electrons orbiting here. One, two, three four, five, six. And they're going to be moving around in this unpredictable way that we would have to describe with a probability function. And so, and, and the interesting thing about it is most of the mass of, a, of, a, of, a, of an atom is sitting right in here. I mean, you might notice that when people care about the mass of a, when they care about kind of the atomic mass number of, a, of an atom, they ignore the electrons. And that's because the mass of a proton, one proton, Mass-wise is equal to 1,836 electrons. So, for thinking about the mass of an atom, for all, you know, for for all basic purposes, you can ignore the mass of an electron. That it's really the the mass of the the mass of the nucleus that that counts as the of the uh, as the kind of mass of the atom. Now, you might see this periodic table here, and you say, okay, they gave us the atomic number up there. Right, the atomic number of oxygen is eight. It means it has eight protons. The atomic number of silicon is fourteen. It has fourteen protons. Now, what is this right here? Let's see. Let's in carbon. Carbon. They have this 
12.0107. That is the atomic weight of carbon. So let me write this. Right there. Atomic, atomic weight of carbon. And the atomic weight of carbon is 12.0107. Now what does that mean? Does that mean that you know carbon has six protons? Six protons, and then the remainder, the remaining 6.0107. Neutrons, it has kind of this fraction of a neutron? No, it means if you were to average all of the carbon, all of the different carbon versions of carbon you find on the planet, and you were to average the number of neutrons based on on the different on, on the on the kind of the quantity of the different types of carbon, this is the average you would get. So it turns out that carbon, it the the two major forms, the main one you'll find is carbon twelve. So that's like this. So that has six protons and six neutrons. And then another isotope of carbon. Now an isotope is the same element with a different number of neutrons. Another isotope of carbon is carbon-14, which is much more scarce in the, in, on, on the planet. We don't know how much you know in the universe, but on the planet. Now if you were to average these, not just a straight up average, then you would get you know carbon-13, and then the atomic weight would be 13. But you weight this one much higher, because this exists in much larger quantities on Earth. I mean, this is pretty much all of the carbon that you see, but there's a little bit of this. So if you weight them appropriately, the average becomes this. So most of the carbon you'll find, so if you just took found carbon in, the, in some place, on average, its weight in atomic mass units is going to be 12.0. 12.0107. But that idea of an isotope is an interesting one. Remember, when you change the neutrons, you're not changing the actual fundamental element. You're just getting a different isotope, a different version of the element. So these two versions of carbon are both isotopes. Now, I want to leave this video, which I think is kind of the neatest idea behind atoms, and it's kind of the most philosophically interesting things about them, is that the the relative size so you know we have this electrons which ma represent very little of the mass of of a of a of an atom i mean it's you know 1 2000th of of the mass of an atom are in the electrons and they even them those are it's hard to even describe them as particles because they had, you can't even tell me exactly where and how fast one of these particles is moving they just have a probability function so most of the atom is sitting there inside the nucleus and this is the interesting thing if you look at an, an atom on average, if you say, you know, this is my atom, and let's say I had two atoms that are bonded to each other. And I would say, what, you know, how much of this is actual stuff? And when I say stuff, that's a very abstract concept because we're talking about the nucleus, right? Because the nucleus is where all the mass is, all the stuff. It turns out that it's actually an infinitesimally small fraction of the volume of the atom. Where if, you know, the volume of the atom, it's hard to define because the electron can pretty much be anywhere. But if you view the volume as where you're most likely to find the electron, or you know, with 90% probability, you're likely to find the electron, then the nucleus is, on a lot of cases, and the way I think is, but 1 10,000th of the volume. So if you think about it, when you look at something, if you look at your hand, or if you look at the wall, or if you look at your computer, 99.999% of it 
is free space. It's nothing. It's vacuum. It's if if you were to just you know if you had ultra small I guess we could call them particles or something most of them would pass straight through whatever you look at so it already starts to kind of question our holds on reality what is there when if you know and this is this is kind of this is fact this isn't theory right here that if you take anything down to the building blocks down to the atomic level most of the space on of that kind of quote unquote object is free vacuum space. You could go straight through it if you could get down to that scale. I mean, now this is this image of a helium atom. They say right here, this is one femtometer, right? One femtometer, one femtometer. They, this is the scale of the nucleus of a helium atom, right? One femtometer. This is one angstrom, right? And they say that equals a hundred thousand femtometers. And just to get a sense of scale. One angstrom is one times ten to the negative tenth meters, right? So the atom is roughly on the scale of an angstrom. In the case of helium, the nucleus is even a smaller fraction; it's one hundred thousandth. So when you, if you had, you know, let's say you had liquid helium, which you'd have to get very cold to get. If you're looking at that, most of it is free space. If you're looking at an iron bar, the great, 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 great majority of it is free space, and we're not even talking about what's, you know, maybe there's some free space inside the nucleus that we could talk about in the future. But to me, that just blows my mind that most things we look at are not really solid. They're really just empty space, but they look solid because of the way light reflects on them or the forces that repel us. But there really isn't kind of something to to touch there. That most of this right here is all free space. I think I've said the word free space now, and I think I'll leave leave further mind blowing to the next video.